Right then. Well, really looking forward to doing this uh, this second talk on um, the question of do Muslims and uh, and Christians worship the, the same God? There's a question I've been thinking about for, for some years. It's been sort of 20 years or so, uh, maybe a little more, more actually, that I've been involved in, in outreach to Muslims after I first got involved in lots of conversations with them back when I lived in, in London. And in fact, uh, a few months ago, came out with a new book um, on this whole issue of do Muslims and Christians worship the same God. So what I'm going to share with you today is sort of drawn a bit um, from particularly uh, one of the chapters in here. And there's a link there on the on the slide if it's coming through and you can see it to the Solas website there where you can actually uh, you can read the first chapter. And uh, or if you're an audio book person, there's also the first chapter as an audio book. So you can you can kind of listen uh, to it. And to encourage you, it is not me doing the audiobook reading, so it's someone whose who's tones are not as grating as mine. And um, but so, hugely looking forward to digging into this topic with you folks for the next 45 or 50 minutes or so. And, and really, behind the, the reason I think for, for putting Islam in as the second topic, as you know, Jeremy and I went to and from what he would like me to talk about, is that of course it won't have escaped your attention that we live in a very, very pluralistic context uh, now here in the UK. We've with many of our major cities are incredibly multicultural. Now, I grew up in, in London, in South London, and even back there in the, in the 1980s, um, that was a very, very multicultural context. Where I grew up in London, you know, we were surrounded by every religion imaginable. You know, you could choose from Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Atheism, Islamism, Jainism, Judaism. Uh, you could even support the local uh, football team, Crystal Palace. We called that masochism. And all those different isms, uh, sloshing around and those kind of religious changes are accelerating rapidly um, and are especially apparent when it comes to the growth of you know, Islam uh, here in the UK. Yes, all religions are sort of you know, growing here in the UK. We're surrounded by many of them, but Islam is perhaps by far the biggest and one that gets the most uh, attention. And what's interesting is actually when I first got involved in outreach to Muslims in the 1990s, uh, you know, few Christians were interested in Islam. But now, you know, we had 9-11 then we had we've had changing immigration patterns uh, in recent uh, years and everybody is talking about Islam. And actually, this is a fascinating uh, infographic put together by the Muslim Council of Britain. We haven't got time to go through all of this now, but do have a look on the on the website slides because just some of the, the facts and figures in here are fascinating. And, uh, you know, lying behind a lot of what's going on with Islam here in the UK, we have you know, changing migration patterns, 43 percent. Of the migrants who arrived here in the UK between 2010-2016, the, the, the cohort for which we have the best data, 43% of those were Muslims. And the staggering statistic that's being talked about in numerous uh, places is this figure that suggests that by 2050, something like 13 million uh, Muslims will be here in the UK. That was first, uh, uh, first based on some work done by the Pew Forum in the States, who do some brilliant work tracking religious trends worldwide, but others now are picking up on this on this figure. And all of that means that it is absolutely vital that as Christians, we think missionally and evangelistically and apologetically about Muslims. Because if you don't know a Muslim, uh, you will know a Muslim or your kids will grow up and have Muslim friends or, or colleagues or neighbours. Islam is going to become more and more of an issue. And it's crucial that as Christians, we think about how to engage well. And sadly, the church hasn't always uh, engaged well. In recent years, I I think one reaction that many Christians have had to Islam has been fear, um, you know, fear of extremism, uh, fear of another religion that is you know, evangelistically and uh, is evangelistic and very confident 
fear of how different uh, Muslims are. Or on the other hand, I meet Christians who are afraid of talking to their talking about Muslims at work, say to that about their faith because they're afraid of causing offence or or whatever. So fear is there. But then on the other hand, there I get equally worried by some parts of the church that think the way to deal with Islam is not fear, uh, but uh, but fudge. Uh, to capitulate, to suggest, for example, that Islam is a, you know, an Abrahamic faith, uh, along with Judaism and Christianity, or even, at, you know, perhaps the sort of extreme ends uh, of the uh, of the church to try and, you know, the liberal end of the church to try and perhaps merge Islam and Christianity into, and Judaism into a sort of monotheistic muddle with suggestions like, you know, the idea that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. In fact, I was reading a news story just the other week of uh, there's some uh, sort of new religious building has just opened up in Germany. Uh, I think it's called the House of One, and it's uh, presided over by an imam and, uh, and, a, and a Christian minister and a Jewish rabbi. And the whole idea behind it is to try and advance this suggestion that really these three faiths are essentially the same. And others have, have played in this space uh, in, in recent years, even if not going quite that far. So in 2011, uh, the very, very influential Christian theologian Miroslav Volf uh, brought out a book uh, called Allah, A Christian Response, in which he argues that the, the best way for Christians and Muslims to get along in the kind of pluralistic age we find ourselves in is to assume that we're, you know, we are closer than we think. Let me just give you a flavour of what he says in the opening chapter. He writes, Christians and Muslims worship one and the same God. They understand God's character partly differently, but the object of their worship is the same. I reject the suggestion, the idea that Muslims and Christians worship a different God than do Jews and Christians. So in the next uh, half hour or so, uh, 35 minutes or so, what I want to do is suggest that I think neither approach, neither, neither fear in the face of Islam or, or fudge um, is helpful and neither represents a Christ-like response to Islam. Instead, what I want to do is help us think about how we can engage more helpfully, think more helpfully about, it, about Islam, but do it through the window of this question of whether Christians and Muslims really do worship uh, the same God. Because although you hear that claim everywhere, um, all over our culture, I'm not sure that it actually stands up. In fact, I'm a, I'm a great believer in something that the, the Christian writer Oz Guinness once said. He, uh, Oz, uh, who's a, a master of coming out with these clever little uh, proverbs and sayings, he once wrote, he said, contrast is the mother of clarity, by which I think he was saying that, you know, if we compare two things, we often see both those things more clearly. And I actually think it's interesting that when you compare the God of the Bible with the God of the Quran, the, the, the scripture of Islam, actually we see as we do that comparison, we see some things about the God of the Bible that we might otherwise, if not miss entirely, might actually take for granted. Um, because it's my, uh, it's my firm belief that actually when you look at some of the key characteristics of the God of the Bible and you look at what the Quran says about those things and see how different they are, that actually we get a fresh insight into how uh, amazing and how wonderful and how unique the God of the Bible is. So I want to, in this next day, section of the talk, I want to take uh, show you four attributes of the God of the Bible, and then we'll see what Islam has to say on the same thing and how Islam and the Quran are, are very, very different. And the, and the first one, first attribute of the God of the Bible I want to talk about for a few moments is that the God of the Bible is a God who is relational. You know, this arguably is the thrust of the whole of scripture. From the opening pages to the very last pages and in the very first uh, chapters of Genesis we read of how God was to be found walking and talking in the garden uh, with, uh, with Adam and Eve 
God walks and talks with Moses, uh, with Abraham in Genesis 17 and 18. Uh, and, in Mo- and in Exodus, we're told in Exodus 33 that Moses would speak with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, you know, the, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible is a God who is very present uh, with his people, always showing up in unexpected and remarkable ways. But then as the story of the Bible goes on, as, as sin increasingly enters the picture and comes between God and humankind, of course, the whole story of Scripture is the story of God seeking out and, uh, and pursuing humankind. That story of God coming after us to, to win us back into relationship with him and the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. The, uh, what life uh, after death looks like in the Bible is very much a relational vision in Revelation 21. This beautiful description of how the dwelling of God will be with, uh, with men. He will live with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, it's a beautiful passage there in Revelation offering us this very re- relational understanding of what it will be like uh, when we are re- reunited with, uh, with, with Christ when we, after, after we die. And of course, the Bible uses highly relational language to describe God. He's described as a, as a father, as a husband, as a, as a friend. He's the relational God who reveals himself to us by, by his name, by the name Yahweh. And the Bible's call is for us to be in relationship with him. That's what it means to be a Christian, of course, not just to know about God, but to be in relationship with him. Now, you know, we can read all that in the Bible and we can sort of take it for granted somewhat because we get so you know immersed in it as we read our scriptures. But sometimes only when you compare the view of God in another faith tradition that you see how startling it is. And for the Quran, we turn to the Quran and look at this theme and go, what is the Quran? talk about a God who is relational, we see actually there is no such relationship described in the Quran. The, the God of the Quran, Allah, is a very distant uh, God. He's distant, uh, he's remote, he's transcendent, to use the, the theological term. Uh, no relationship is possible. Nowhere does the Quran ever invite its readers into a relationship with God. And then what the Quran also does is the Quran will take biblical stories with this kind of relationship theme and then retell them, but edit the story to remove it. So, for example, the, the Quran retells the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, but Allah is not present in the garden. He's not there walking and talking there in the Quran. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's absent in that sense. And when you read the Quran's description of heaven, there's nothing like Revelation 21. Heaven is a, is a place of uh, sort of wine and fruit and food and young women for the men to enjoy. It's a sort of party in the sky, really, in the Quran, but Allah is not present. And nor, of course, according to the Quran, did Allah take on flesh in the person of Jesus? In fact, you could argue he's absent in the Quran from the beginning of history. He's not there in the garden. He's absent from the end of history. He's not present in paradise. And he's absent from the middle, middle, middle of history because the Quran denies the incarnation. And the only relationship that really exists in the, in the Quran, if we were to use the word relationship between humans and God, is one of master and servant. Allah is the master. Humans are the servant. Our job is to just to obey unquestioningly and nothing more is possible. Now, of course, you know, I'm a Christian theologian and evangelist sharing this with you. Maybe I'm giving an unfair spin to this. What do Muslim theologians make of this? Am I, am I being accurate about Islam? Would Muslim theologians recognize the picture that I have uh, drawn? Well, the answer is yes. Um, Shabir Akhtar, uh, one of the Western world's most well-regarded Muslim theologians based at Oxford University, wrote this in his book, A Faith for All Seasons, a few years ago now. Shabir writes, Muslims do not see God as their father. Men are servants of a just master, but they cannot, in orthodox Islam, typically attain any greater degree of intimacy 
with their creator. In other words, in Islam, human beings are just servants. Whilst in contrast, of course, Jesus Christ said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And interestingly, I would say that lies at the heart of the difference, not just between Christianity and Islam, but actually I think it lies at the heart of the difference between Christianity and every other religion, and arguably is what reveals Christianity to be more in some sense than just a religion. Um, you know, if we were to use the word religion in perhaps a sort of, you know, anthropological or sociological sense, the word, you know, religion is generally defined by, by many academics as, a, as, you know, religions are systems of, of thought or, or ritual or practice that, you know, say if you keep these commandments or master this teaching or behave this way or so on and so forth, you can kind of satiate the spiritual hunger within. That's how most religions operate. But Christianity throws that entire playbook out the window and says, well, actually, it doesn't matter how much theology you master. It doesn't matter how many commands you keep. It doesn't matter how many mystical experiences you pursue. Nothing can bridge that gap between us and God from our side. It's unbridgeable, but it can be bridged from, from God's side. And in fact, when people ask me, and I often get questions along this line on particularly on in sort of secular settings on campuses and so on people often say to me well Andy you know do you think that that all religions lead to God I like to often say well actually you know what I don't think any religion leads to God only God can lead us to God and that's what he's done uh, uniquely in the person of Jesus so the God of the Bible is a God who's relational and the God of the Quran is not let's look at our second uh, attribute the God of the Bible is a God who who reveals himself and and can be known and as I've just said, at the heart of the Christian faith stands primarily not a list of doctrines and moral commands, but this this relationship, the astonishing claim of the Bible, as you know, is, is if we put our trust and our, and our faith and our hope in Jesus, then we can be quite literally adopted into God's family and become not slaves, but but children. And that relational aspect is at the centre of the, of the gospel. But of course, it's only possible to have a relationship with somebody if they make themselves known, you know, if some new uh, you know, person moved into your neighborhood and being a good neighbor, you wanted to get to know this new person, um, but they never came out of their house. They drew the curtains and hid themselves away, ordered all of their groceries online and uh, only ever left their house for monthly meetings of the Agrophobics Anonymous Society. But of course, those are closed door meetings and you can't get in. That's a class joke, though. See, Agrophobics closed door meetings. If this was a live event, you'd all be rolling in the aisles. But there we are. We're on Zoom. We'll do what we can. Um, you couldn't get to know that person, right? You couldn't have a relationship with them because they would refuse to make themselves known. And the same is true for God. If God hid himself away in heaven, never revealed him himself, never took the initiative, then we might know about him, but we couldn't know him personally. We couldn't actually know him. Well, thankfully and amazingly, the, uh, the, the Bible tells the story from beginning to, the, to end of a God who reveals not just his commands, but also his character and his very own identity. You know, we alluded a moment ago to Exodus 3, uh, where, in, uh, where Moses there meets uh, God out there in the desert, the burning bush. And this very, very powerful encounter that Moses has, God doesn't just reveal his plan for Moses' life and the things he'd have Moses do, but he reveals to Moses his very own personal name, Yahweh, I am. And that theme of God revealing himself, of course, is seen, I think, even more, uh, even more clearly there in the New Testament in the person of Jesus, where in John 14, verse 9, Jesus says to the disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, so the God of the Bible is a God who consistently and throughout Old and New Testaments reveals his character, his heart, his, his name, his very own person uh, in Jesus Christ. And of course, because of that, 
that means he can be known. Unless you see famous passages like this one, Book of Jeremiah, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they understand and know me. Now, this theme of knowing God, which is all over the Bible, again, we can take it for granted. We, we see it everywhere. We become familiar with it. We don't sort of get struck by how astonishing and how incredible it is, perhaps until we look at an alternative. And when we turn to the Quran, we see a very different view of God put forth there, a God who, who actually can't uh, be known because the God of the Quran does not uh, reveal himself in this way, does not allow himself to be known personally. One of the striking things in Islam, if you know anything about the origins of Islam and how it began, is that Muslims believe that their scripture, the Quran, was uh, revealed uh, to Muhammad uh, there in the seventh century, but not revealed by God. God never shows up to, to, to Muhammad and reveals the Quran to him. In Islamic theology, it's the angel Gabriel uh, who comes and reveals the Quran to Muhammad. God, even with Muhammad in Islamic theology, keeps himself at a, at a distance. A huge contrast uh, with the Bible, where time and time again, God speaks with his prophets and his people, even face to face, such as that powerful encounter that Moses had at the burning bush or on Mount Sinai, or as we saw in the person of Jesus. And again, the fact that Allah doesn't reveal himself, that only his commands are made known in the Quran, not his character, no invitation to know him. Again, just so you're not just taking my word for this, let's see what, a, what a, an orthodox, uh, popular, well-known Muslim theologian has to say. And uh, this comes from uh, this quote I'm about to read to you comes from a gentleman called Ismail al-Faraqi until his death a few years ago. A uh, very, very well-known uh, Muslim intellectual and theologian, very influential. And uh, in this paragraph, I think he, in some senses, expresses, you know, this, this so beautifully. He gets almost the heart of the gospel, ironically, because he writes, Allah does not reveal himself to anyone in any way. Allah reveals only his will. Allah does not reveal himself to anyone. That is the great difference between Christianity and Islam. I remember the first time reading this in, a, in, a, in an Islamic library somewhere in London, and I, and I read this, I actually got quite excited, and I, I sort of recall saying as well, amen out loud, because I just thought this was brilliant, and seeing other people in the library look at me in a slightly shocked kind of way, but um, really interesting how Al-Faraqi, I think, has got it absolutely right. That is the great difference between Christianity and Islam. So the God of the Quran, the Bible is relational, and he can be known. The God of the Quran is neither of those things. Two more for you, and then we'll draw all the threads together and think about how we use this uh, in terms of engaging with Muslims. Third characteristic of the God of the Bible I want to talk about for a few moments this morning is that uh, the God of the Bible is a God who is, is love. And uh, that is certainly one of God's primary attributes in the Bible. There are so many Bible passages we could, we could look at, perhaps the, the most direct, the most succinct, 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And even in this three little word sentence here, there is so much theology packed into this. You know, the uh, first John here telling us that, that love is not something God does, but, but love is something that, that God is. It's part of his very, very nature. And to get all theological on you for a moment, of course, the, the God of the Bible is a God who is Trinity. Uh, he's a God who is three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, which means at the heart of who God is lies a, a network of loving relationships. Before God brought anything into existence, he was love because the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Spirit and so forth. So God in his very nature. And the Bible is a God who is love. But what's interesting is on this topic, perhaps more than any other, I hear people say to me often things like, well, Andy, every religion teaches that God is love. That, you know, it's common to all the world's great faith traditions. And like so many things you read on Twitter, for example, it simply isn't true. Because when you turn to the Quran and its depiction of God, we see actually something very different here. 
Nowhere in the Quran are we told that Allah is loving. There is no equivalence to 1 John 4, 16 uh, in, the, in the Quran. Indeed, again, to get all theological on you for a moment, the Quran rejects the Trinity. Several verses in the Quran directly uh, attack the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and describe Allah as he's not triune, he does, he's not multipersonal, he is utterly indivisibly one, which means he can't be loving in his very nature. The only way Allah could be loving, he would first have to create something uh, to love. And so his very nature itself cannot be one of love. But there's another interesting feature too in the Quran, that when you look at how it uses the word love and the Arabic words it uses for that term in connection with God, something quite interesting is going on. Um, about 79% of the times the word the Quran uses uh, Arabic words for love and applies them to Allah in the Quran, they are negative. So the Quran tells us who Allah doesn't love, you know, those who reject faith, those who disobey, those who do wrong, those who boast, those who are un ungrateful, uh, traffic wardens, the list goes on. Just that last one, just seeing if you're still awake. Um, the other 20% uh, of the time that it uses the word, word love, about six, seven or eight occasions uh, applied to the word God in the Quran, they are conditional. So we're told that, well, Allah loves people if they do the following. Um, so if you behave a certain way, Allah might, might love you. And in fact, some Muslim theologians have actually suggested that the word love in the Quran shouldn't be translated love into English. It's more the idea of approves of. Allah approves of these people, he disapproves of, of these people. And in fact, because of the Quran's reticence to just come right out and say that Allah is a God of love, Many Muslim theologians actually caution Muslims not to use this word. So Murad Hoffman, uh, well-regarded uh, Muslim uh, uh, theologian, actually convert to, to Islam uh, from a sort of secular background and then, and then became a Muslim many years ago. Now very well-regarded Muslim academic. Um, listen to what he says on this. He says, Allah is self-sufficient. This fundamental self-description excludes that Allah is in love with his creation. It is safer and more accurate not to speak of love when addressing his clemency, compassion, benevolence, goodness, or mercy. What a staggering statement that it's just better not to speak of love when speaking about the God of the Quran. And what a profound contrast from the God of the Bible, who we are told on numerous occasions loves everybody, uh, even the sinner. In fact, the Bible tells us uh, that God loves us so much that he took the first move. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in the Quran for Allah, well, you know, you have to you have to do all of the running and then Allah might maybe approve of you. In the Bible, God has demonstrated his love even while we were his enemies. So three contrasts down, one to go. God of the Bible, relational, can be known, he's love. The Quran, the Quranic God of Allah is not any of those things. Fourthly, the God of the Bible is a, is a God who has suffered. And I think this is quite an important one, actually, given the world we live in. You know, we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world in which there is evil and suffering and pain, and pandemics and all this other stuff that we, we know so well. And the remarkable thing about the God of the Bible is he does not stand aloof from that world, um, but has entered into it and knows what it means to, to suffer. And of course, the love of the, the God of the Bible, therefore, is demonstrated in what he has done to deal uh, with the sin and the shame that separate us uh, from him. The Bible tells us that God grieves for his people, grieves over our sin and rebellion and unfaithfulness. And of course, that ultimately through Jesus and the cross, that God paid this incredibly high price to deal 
with our sin and our brokenness and with all the mess that the world is in. As Isaiah 53 verse 4 famously says, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering and our sorrows. And we turn to the Quran. This is interesting because the Quran wants to go nowhere near uh, this theme. Nowhere is the Quran willing to even entertain the idea that God might be, might be moved or that God might be willing to, to suffer or enter into our suffering and, and brokenness. The God of the Quran very is a God who is removed from all of those uh, things. He feels no grief as a result of our sin or our pain or our suffering. Um, and he's done nothing about it, interestingly, in the Quran. I mean, certainly when you read the Quran, Allah gets angry um, at sin and that anger is expressed in wrath and judgment. But there is no heart uh, response. There is nothing done by the Quranic God to deal uh, with the problem of sin. And as you read uh, the Quran, you see there is no plan of salvation. There is no savior. There is no atonement. There's none of those things. Allah has not taken the initiative and has not entered into this world to deal with all of our mess and our brokenness. And one last Muslim theologian for you this morning, Muhammad al-Bakawi, another very well regarded uh, Sunni uh, Muslim writer, um, expressing this fact that, you know, God is sort of in Islam is totally impassable and unmoved, right? He says, Allah can annihilate the universe if it seems good to him and recreate it in an instant. He receives neither profit nor loss from whatever happens. If all infidels became believers and all the wicked pious, he would gain nothing. And if all believers became infidels, it would not cause him loss. And in fact, the Quran actually, you know, sort of playing with this theme that uh, Muhammad al-Bakawi here is picking up, the Quran repeatedly returns to the idea that every Muslim, every individual Muslim, actually has to carry the weight of his or her own sin, hoping that on the day of judgment, their good deeds can outweigh their bad deeds. You are responsible for, for your own salvation uh, in Islam. Verses like this one, uh, in the Quran, no bearer of sin can bear the sin of another. Although what's interesting, I early on in my engagement with Muslims, uh, you know, back in those years in London, I would often have Muslims would throw this verse at me to say, you know, there's no need for, you know, there's no space in Islam for for us for a savior. You know, we don't need Jesus and any of this other stuff. We carry it. We, you know, no, no one can carry the sin of another. It was only a few times after re after I read this verse a few times that it occurred to me there's a just a little bridge one can make to the gospel here. Because, of course, it says no bearer of sin can bear the sin of another. I, the Quran saying if you're if you're carrying your own sins, you've got no room to carry somebody else's. But what about someone who is sinless? What about someone who's not bearing any burden of sins? Presumably they can carry the burdens of another. And it's interesting that in Islamic theology, Jesus is sinless. Uh, he's the only one of the other prophets in the Quran who is considered to be totally sinless. And Muslims have been taught that idea. And so actually, I've often used this verse as a, as a bridge with Muslim friends to, to the gospel. So when we look at uh, God in the Bible, we see all these four themes that we've looked at today, these four attributes of his nature flow together. You know, he's a God who's relational, he's a God who's could be known, he's a God who is love, he's a God who has, who has suffered, a God who was, whose love for the sinner was so great that he was willing to pay the price of the cross. But a huge contrast with the God of Islam, who is not relational, cannot be known, is not loving and has not experienced uh, suffering, has not taken on our sorrows and our infirmities. But there's one last contrast that I want to just explore uh, for a few uh, minutes today that we haven't talked about. One last big difference between the God of the Bible and the, the God of the Quran, and that difference concerns mercy and justice. You know, it's the, the themes of mercy and justice 
uh, lie at the heart of many of the world's great faith traditions. And there's certainly something the Bible talks about, and there's certainly something that the Quran talks about. Many, many Muslims, of course, would affirm that they believe that Allah is merciful and just. And as, as Christians, we would say the same of Yahweh in the Bible. He's merciful and he's just. And, and maybe here there's a scope for finding some common ground and some similarity. Um, but I often say to folks, I wonder if you've noticed something. I wonder if you've ever noticed there's a little bit of a problem here in that mercy and justice actually contradict. They don't fit well together. They actually, they actually contradict. Because if you think about it for a moment, you see mercy is always executed at the expense of, uh, of judgment and, uh, and justice. Um, let me illustrate what I mean. Let's imagine that this afternoon, uh, you know, Jeremy, after the session, walks out of his house and suddenly local police swoop and they, they arrest him. And uh, it turns out the hideous crime that he committed the week before has been discovered. Jeremy should probably not have posted about it on social media. And the police drag him off and uh, there's a hastily convened court on Monday morning. And uh, he's, uh, he's put on trial and found guilty by a, by a jury of his peers. And the judge then peers down at Jeremy from, his be from her bench and says, you know, according to the law of the country, you've been found guilty of this crime. And according to the law, it's uh, 20 years in prison is the sentence for this particular crime you've committed. Well, I'm a judge who believes in being totally, utterly just, and I will follow the law to the letter. And therefore, you know, 20 years you get and, and off he goes uh, to the cells. So that judge, of course, in that case has been totally just, right? Jeremy committed the crime. Now he's going to do the time. But of course, there wasn't a hint of mercy, not a hint of forgiveness anywhere to be seen. That was a purely judgmental encounter. Well, now let's rerun the narrative. This afternoon, Jeremy goes for a little, little walk in the sunshine. The police swoop. They arrest him. They find that because of this crime he's committed. On Monday, there's a hastily convened court. He's found guilty by a jury of his peers. The judge peers down at him from her bench and says, according to the law of the country, you are to be sentenced to 20 years in prison. But you know what? Actually, I'm feeling merciful today. I'm feeling happy. It's the sunshine. I've been out in the sunshine all weekend. I'm, I'm in such a good mood. You know what? On this occasion, I'm going to let you go free. Go out of, get out of my courtroom before I change my mind. And, uh, and of course, Jeremy would skip out of there as fast as his little legs would carry him. Now, in that scenario, of course, has the judge been merciful? Well, yeah, she's been merciful. She's been forgiving. He's been a let off for 20 years uh, inside because of the judge's mercy and forgiveness. But here's the thing. Has she been just? Well, no, of course, she's, she's ignored the fact that there was a crime committed. And presumably there are victims uh, that, you know, whatever the crime was, who are on the receiving end of this who have been ignored and their rights trampled upon. And of course, you can imagine the headlines in the newspapers the next day, you know, liberal judge lets Aberdeen serial killer go free or something. Um, and there's a problem. And that, 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 that little thought experiment illustrates how mercy and justice don't fit well together. If you exercise justice, you overlook mercy. If you exercise mercy, you overlook justice. And of course, the same applies to God. I will often like to say to Muslim friends, you know, if God executes justice, if he fulfills his role as the one who is utterly righteous and utterly just, and therefore we will get what our desert, we deserve. But of course, hope fails at that point because we are all doomed, because none of us have lived up to our own standards, let alone, let alone God's. And if God just purely exercises, exercises judgment, we are all in trouble. But on the other hand, if God doesn't execute judgment, if God merely pats us on the head and goes, don't worry, all the things you've done, you know, I'm just a great big grandfather in the sky, in you come, let's not talk about it. Then to go, well, at that point, justice fails. What about the victims? What about the people we've hurt by our actions? What about the fact that, you know, God is supposed to be on who upholds justice and he's overlooked that role entirely? 
And at the same level as we did with a court case, we have a contradiction here at the, the heart of who God is between justice and mercy. And this is a contradiction in most religions, and it is certainly, certainly a massive contradiction in Islam. And the simple fact is that mercy and justice contradict. And unless we can find a way of resolving that, we are in real trouble. But I always want to say when I'm dialoguing with Muslim friends, you see what excites me and the re one of the many reasons I'm a Christian is only in Christianity is this tension actually resolved. Because the heart of the gospel stands the incredible piece of good news that in Christianity, God does not exercise mercy at the expense of justice or justice at the expense of mercy, but he exercised mercy and forgiveness through his justice, through the justice of the cross when judgment and mercy meet. And the message at the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of the Bible, is, as you know, that God stepped into history in the person of Jesus and that Jesus offers to make himself one with those who trust him. And when we trust in Christ and our sin and our rebellion, they become his sin. He takes them into himself and he takes the injustice we have done into himself and he pays the price. And at the cross, every sin was not ignored. It was punished. Every penalty paid in full, justice upheld, not ignored. Uh, and at the cross, Jesus paid for us. And only because of that is mercy possible. And I always want to be very keen to say to my Muslim friends, look, the Bible is very clear that there will be justice, that God will judge the world. And everything that has taken place will be revealed and brought into the light. Every injustice, every, every sin, every crime, every evil, every secret thing, every wrong punished. But Christianity teaches, the Bible teaches that if we are forgiven and welcomed into heaven, it won't be because God says your wrongdoing doesn't matter, but precisely because it does matter. And in the cross, God has passed judgment on it, said it's worthy of death. And if we are one with Jesus, he takes our place. We are forgiven because sin matters so much that Jesus paid that high price to deal with it. And if we accept Christ, we are forgiven because he paid. If we reject Christ, we will be judged and we will pay. Either way, the price of justice has to be paid by somebody. But in Christian faith, uniquely and hugely in contrast to Islam, Jesus has paid for us because of God's love for us. And love is a good point to come to an ending. You know, I've spoken several times about love uh, this morning. And as, as I said earlier, I am. Um, I, uh, I meet many people, both Christians and Muslims and those of other faiths who tell me they believe as a God, a God, of, a God of love. And in fact, if I, have a, if I had a pound for every time someone has said to me, they think that every religion teaches that God is love, I could probably afford at least two cappuccinos at Starbucks. Um, but I often say to folks when they say to me they believe in a God of love, or if I meet Muslims who say to me they believe in a God of love, I often like to ask a question, you know, in keeping with our first theme this morning. And the question I often like to say to people is, what do you think is the is the highest form of love that could be expressed because you see we use the word love quite cheaply don't we we talk about loving our jobs loving our homes loving our, our phones you know loving all kinds we use the word love in all kinds of different ways and i think it's been cheapened in our culture so interesting interesting questions what's the highest form of the purest form of love uh, the most dramatic form of love that could be expressed and what i find fascinating when you ask that question most people with not a lot of help get to actually they get to the Jesus answer because of course Jesus answered that question in John 15 where he said greater love has no one than this that they lay down their life for their friends and what I find fascinating is we all instinctively Christian Muslim Buddhist Hindu atheist everyone actually knows this to be true 
and history is replete with examples of, of heroes and heroines you know who have you know laid their life down for others in different contexts as a parent who has sacrificed a life for a child uh, you know somebody who was a soldier and in, 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 on the battlefield who has laid down his or her life to save the rest of the platoon or one of my favorite historical examples that, that I found very powerful their story is this gentleman this is Maximilian Kolbe some of you may have heard his story but it's not as well known today as I think it should be who, who was he well Maximilian was a Polish Catholic monk uh, who was arrested in 1941 by the German Gestapo for his work uh, sheltering Jews and other refugees like many he was helping uh, rescue Jewish families and smuggle them out of the country to safety and the Germans got wind of this and he was arrested and after his arrest he was uh, he was sent off to the interned in the notorious Auschwitz concentration camp well a year after he was uh, sent into the concentration camp another prisoner escaped from Auschwitz and this infuriated the German authorities and so to deter future escape attempts the uh, deputy camp commander uh, got all the prisoners gathered together in the prison yard and he announced that he was about to pick the names read out the names of 10 prisoners that he had chosen at random and those 10 prisoners would be taken away and locked up in an underground cell with no food and no water and left to just die there in the darkness and to send a message if you escape from Auschwitz this is what we will do to your to your friends and the names were probably read out and one of the prisoners on hearing his name read out uh, began to, to weep and have hysterics as you might imagine began crying out my my wife my, my children whatever will become of them on hearing those words maximilian stepped out of the crowd of prisoners looked the commandant squarely in the eye and said sir may i take the place of that man the commandant agreed and the other prisoner was released back into the into the crowd of prisoners and maximilian was led away with those nine other men and uh, thrown into a tiny bunker with no food no water and left to die there of starvation and dehydration and the reason we know his story is the man whose life he saved survived the war and then spent the rest of his life telling the story of what had been done for him and of course what maximilian was doing was living out those words of his savior jesus who said greater love has no one than this and they lay down their life for their friends and i always say to people especially to muslims that this raises a very interesting question doesn't it observation rather see if god is a god of love then of course god by his very definition is the greatest being that's what it means for god to be god if god is uh, god that means anything he does is the greatest god is the greatest judge the greatest creator the greatest ruler and so on and so forth that's sort of part of the job description i guess so this means if god demonstrates love then by definition it has to be the highest conceivable form of love because otherwise you or i could go out and give our life for a friend and we have shown even greater love than the creator of the universe and if the highest greatest form of love is to lay down one's life then of course i say to muslims do you now see why the life of jesus and who he is becomes absolutely critical what it tells us about the god of the universe you see if jesus is who he claimed to be god come in the flesh god stepping into space and time and history god getting his feet dusty with the dirt of the world and his hands bloody with the nails of the world and then jesus willingness to go to the cross and we see the greatest act of love by the greatest being in existence who loved us so much that even while we're still his enemies he was willing to do that so finally where do we go 
with all of this. My, my hope this morning is not that you listen to what I've walked you through and you go away going, fantastic, Christianity is superior to Islam, brilliant. Uh, if that's your only conclusion this morning, I would have failed somewhat. Um, my hope is that as you reflect on the, on the wonder and the uniqueness of the biblical God, it might lead to, to three responses. The first is that it should inspire and thrill us. All concepts of God are not the same. All religions are not the same. There are profound differences and those differences make a huge difference. And there is simply no one like the God of the Bible. He is incomparable. And that should lead us uh, to worship, to sing, to praise, to follow him wholeheartedly and should fill our lives and our hearts with joy and delight and wonder and excitement. But of course, that joy and amazement and wonder has to, absolutely has to then overflow into evangelism, as we were talking about in the panel discussion, you know, into that desire to, to share the good news of God uh, and who he is in the Christian faith with those like our Muslim friends uh, who know nothing of a God like that, a God who has revealed his love, his character, his forgiveness, uh, his suffering so clearly and powerfully in the person of Jesus and of course, it was Jesus who said in Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, in the 21st century multicultural UK, all the nations have come here. So we can now fulfill that mandate and save ourselves the airfare. But let's ensure that as well as welcoming new arrivals and new immigrants to our land, let's ensure we are also uh, introducing them to our Lord. And then finally, in that model of incarnational self-sacrificing outreaching love that we see so powerfully in Christ hopefully and, and should I think challenge us in terms of how we should be reaching Muslims uh, you know reaching out to Muslims to Muslim friends to neighbours to those in our community our workplaces maybe maybe hard it may be tough it may require us to go beyond our comfort zones but in a sense that's what Jesus did in the incarnation uh, for each one of us and we have got to be willing uh, I think to show that same level of sacrificial love and going that extra mile with our Muslim friends and neighbours. In fact, I remember a year or two ago talking to a friend of mine uh, down south in, in Oxford who's done uh, a lot of work with Muslims, but had actually missed the fact that his, at his workplace he had a Muslim, there was a Muslim colleague. And uh, so one day he decided actually he ought to sort of do, you know, evangelism, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, more in a more, more close to home, not just out in the streets. And so he invited this Muslim colleague and his wife to dinner. And he said, look, the colleague and his wife came, they had a, a lovely evening together and actually got into conversations of faith. But my, my friend said he was very struck by something that the Muslim colleague said as he was leaving. He looked at my friend and he said, thank you so much for this evening. This has been incredible. He said, you know, this is the first, I've lived in this country for 20 years. And this is the first time I've ever been inside a Christian home. And my friend was almost moved to tears by that, that 20 years and this, uh, this Muslim gentleman had never been to dinner uh, with a Christian family and in this case my say my friend is someone who works a lot you know in terms of outreach to Muslims but I missed the fact this guy was right under his nose so my hope my prayer for each of you I guess is that uh, you know for those of us who love Jesus and also love or, or want to love Muslims is that confident in God's uh, love for you so powerfully demonstrated in Jesus uh, that in the power of the spirit you would be neither afraid of our Muslim friends nor afraid of being honest about the uniqueness of Christ, but would step out of your comfort zones, befriend the Muslims that God brings across your path, and that maybe you would have the privilege of seeing through your actions and your words, uh, some of those Muslims come in time to meet Jesus.
Thank you for listening uh, so patiently. Uh, Jeremy, back to you. Andy, thank you so much. That was, uh, well, I mean, you took us to the foot of the cross and um, I think the beauty of the gospel shone out as a contrast to um, the Quran. And uh, I think it's a good point, though. It's, this is not about the superiority of Christianity to Islam, but how can we reach our Muslim friends? So thank you for that. Made me want to read your book as well. And I just commend Andy's new book to you. Um, you couldn't get a better guide to both Islam and um, how to reach those who desperately need Jesus. Um, imagine living all your life with a God who cannot be described as love. Um, and thank you, Lord, <laughs> that you are a relational God and you have revealed yourself to us. Um, so thank you so much, Andy, for that. And uh, we just we want to pray as a group for you, really. And, and Solas, um, I hope that today has helped a lot of us think through um, key questions for our own lives, but also to pray for organizations like Solas that seek to make Jesus known. I'm praying for you, Andy, because you, you can't be sharing this kind of thing without attacks along the way, I'm sure, particularly when you talk about Islam. And uh, we want to pray for you that God would protect you in that and uh, and use you mightily. Um, just for the benefit of all of us, I don't have a share screen here, but um, here's a picture of, of Andy's family that you might like to pray for. So that's Andy's wife, Astrid. And his two children, Katrina and Christopher. I don't know what ages are your kids now, Andy. That's a slightly dated photo. Gosh, they've grown. So uh, Christopher is uh, is is six, and uh, and Katrina is eight. Christopher six and Katrina is eight. That's a gorgeous photo. Um, let's be praying for this family as uh, they represent Jesus publicly. And um, we're so grateful, Andy, for the time that you've spent with us today. And we, we want to pray that God will go with you in your future as well. We'd love to keep a contact with you as well, because this whole NASGT setup and what you're sharing with us today seems to be a perfect match. Um, also to say um, a big thank you to all of you listening in today. Um, this is the end of NASGT um, for you. It's the end of three years. And uh, we're so grateful that you have joined us in this. NASGT wouldn't be possible if you weren't coming and listening and uh, I was uh, chatting to a lady last week at church and I remember sending out a whole bunch of books as we were thinking about this apologetic section and I hadn't realized that she was reading all of them. I hadn't intended her to read all of them, but uh, she was getting so much into it and uh, we're very grateful to you all for your interest in NESGT and for the time you've spent in the background reading and discussing with each other. And um, I wanna give a special thanks as well to our team um, to Jerry and to Duncan. It's been great to work with them in NESGT. And uh, also in the background, we've had Rosie and Morvan who do all the technical stuff and, and take in um, all, your, uh, all your applications to, to join NESGT. So we're so grateful for that as well. And we haven't really had much of a chance as a team to talk about where do we go from here, but uh, we would love to have some kind of, of, of way of... Um, maybe having a get together again as uh, the first folks, first group of folks who've been through three years of NESGT. Um, we'll maybe get back to you with ideas. Of course, NESGT continues for the first, for the second cohort and uh, year two of NESG teaching will begin again in September. So if you've missed any of those courses um, over your three years, um, you'll be very welcome to, to tune in again. And hopefully we can go live as well. We won't be restricted to Zoom anymore. 
But thank you so much for um, coming and listening and, and taking on board um, so much teaching over the last three years. Um, so um, it's a very sunny Saturday. I don't want to keep you from the sunshine out there. Um, but thanks again, Andy. Um, thanks again to the team. And why don't I just pray, commit us all to the Lord and um, pray not just that um, God will help us take in what we have heard today, but that we would be those who would be filled with power from the Holy Spirit and take opportunities that God is giving us with Muslim friends, with atheist friends, agnostic friends to share this glorious message of Jesus, who is a God like him. And uh, he has become flesh to save us. How wonderful that is. Um, so why don't I pray for us all um, and pray for the future and for Andy and his family. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for everything Andy has contributed. Um, Father, help us to both see the beauty of this gospel that has been revealed to us by a very personal God. And Father, help us also to have wisdom in how to reach out to Muslim friends and neighbours, and indeed to all kinds of friends and neighbours that we're coming into contact with. Um, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Father, thank you for the, the corner of Scotland that you have allowed us to be in. Father, help us to make the most of the network of friends and family that we have. Help us to see that you have placed us in that network sovereignly um, to share something of Jesus, even to ask questions, provocative questions that will lead down the line to Jesus and the gospel. Father, we, we thank you for Andy. Pray that you'll bless him and Astrid and Katrina and Christopher as a family together. Protect them, Lord. Um, give Andy your wisdom as he speaks in many different settings, sometimes difficult and dangerous settings for him. I pray, Lord, that you'll protect him. I pray that you'll provide for all his needs and for his family's needs as well. And uh, Lord, that you'll bless all the work of Solas in the days that lie ahead. And thank you too, Father, for all that you've done um, in NESGT over these last three years. And I pray for each one who has taken part in this course that you would help them to um, take in all that they've been learning as we go right back to the first module of Bible overview. And as we've been thinking of um, Reformation theology and what it means to be a disciple, all of these things, Father, that you have been placing before us. Help us to be Christians who know you deeply, who love you richly, and are ready to share you boldly and wisely with the people who come across our paths. Father, help us not just to be Christians who grow in knowledge, but who not just know Christ, but make him known in every way. So Father, thank you for all that you are doing among us. And uh, we commit ourselves and our families and our loved ones to you today, committing Andy to you, make it up to him today, help him to be refreshed today um, and bless him in all the future speaking engagements he has. Lord, we lay our lives at your feet and pray that we will make the most of this glorious gospel that you have brought to us. Uh, the love of Jesus, who, unlike Allah, became flesh, died for our sins, has risen again, is seated at your right hand in heaven, and is ready to return to make this world the kingdom of our God. Help us to lead lives that are worthy of him and to speak of him every opportunity we get. Bless us now, we pray, Father, and thank you for this day. In Jesus' powerful name. Amen.